0: Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello everyone, welcome to episode 19 of Dirty Drinks. How are you today, Dr. Starlin?
1: I'm doing great, Sarah. How are you? It's hard to believe we're already up to 19.
0: I know. And I just saw earlier today that we broke a thousand listens.
1: That's so, outstanding. I, I just yeah. never thought that we would uh, grow to this point. We certainly appreciate all of our listeners and followers and anybody that wants to reach out to us, have things to discuss. Uh, we'd be glad to have you on and talk to you.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Um, we have an amazing guest on with us today that um, agreed to chat with us for a little while. So um, I want to introduce Dr. Nata Fadul. She is an infectious disease physician here at UNMC and wears so many hats. So thanks for being on with us today, Dr. Fadul.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's really my pleasure, and it's just so nice to watch this grow now to become this really cool source of information that's just naturally flowing and so welcoming. So I'm really glad to be part of it.
1: Yeah. Super delighted to have one of my colleagues and partners on. So welcome. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you.
0: So do you want to introduce yourself and give a little bit of a background of what you do?
2: Sure. So uh, my name is Nada Fadal. Uh, I'm originally from Sudan. I graduated from University of Khartoum. I'm not gonna say when. Um, but I'm...
1: <laughs> I <laughs> so, won't ask either, so don't worry. Okay, good. Thank you.
2: <laughs> but I moved right after graduation to the US. I did my residency in internal medicine at University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And then I moved to Texas, where I did a palliative care fellowship and worked at MD Anderson Cancer Center for about five years before I went on to do infectious diseases. And my passion for infectious disease was mostly driven by the rising cases of HIV in the nation, but also in Eastern Africa and the severe and huge disparities associated by that. And then eventually I moved to North Carolina, worked there as a medical director of the HIV clinic. And then I'm here now in Omaha since 2018. And I serve as the medical director of the HIV clinic uh, or the specialty care center of Nebraska Medicine. I also serve as Assistant Dean for Diversity Equity Inclusion Education Programs.
1: Very cool. Definitely wearing lots of hats. So um, uh, initial training was in palliative care. Um, uh, we haven't had anybody on our show that uh, has has uh, had an interest in palliative care. can you can you explain to us a little bit what that? what that is and and how you end up in that field?
2: Yeah, sure. So when I did my residency, which was a while ago, at the time you had to choose your field in your second year of training in order to be accepted right after you finished residency. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do in my second year. I liked a lot of things and I wanted to do infectious diseases. I wanted to do rheumatology and then I wanted to do oncology. So I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do until my third year. And that's when I landed on oncology, um, because I was also driven by a lot of the things that oncology patients go through and wanted to help that population. So I applied and got accepted at Henry Ford Hospital in Michigan. But I had a friend at MD Anderson doing palliative care there, and he was talking to me about how this will help you in the field of oncology become better prepared to deal with patients who are suffering from a lot of cancer complications and symptoms, et cetera. So I chose to spend that year gap. Uh, doing palliative care and and training in palliative care. Uh, After the end of the year, I realized that this is a wonderful field and it's understaffed and underutilized. And there is really a need to expand that field. And I became really passionate about it. So I decided to let go of oncology and stay there at MD Anderson as a faculty. And in retrospect, looking at that experience, I think it really helped me be prepared to be a better physician uh, because my view of medicine now has changed from focusing on the disease to focusing on the whole person, uh, whether it's their psychosocial issues, the spiritual challenges that they face, the environmental challenges that they face, the community challenges, all of that. And, and that really prepared me for uh, taking care of patients living with HIV.
0: That's a great story. So being an international provider How has that experience shaped how you practice today?
2: Yeah, that's that's a great question. So there is kind of two ways that has shaped me. Uh, The first one is putting a lot of emphasis on cultural sensitivity in medicine, uh, because I came from a drastically different culture and it took me a while to adjust uh, to the cultural norms and values of the American culture um and I you know I chose to keep some of my own because that's what defines who I am but you know some of the cultures here and the norms were attractive to me so I adopted some of them so I think the person who I am today was shaped over the past we're not going to say how many years but the past few decades and um that kind of alerted me that everyone has their own experiences and um you know, life experiences that shape who they are right now. And I really need to be uh, cognizant and respectful of that and make sure that I'm addressing them in a culturally sensitive way. So I think that experience has really helped me in that regard, being from a different country, but also it helped me pay uh, more of an attention to what's happening around the globe when it comes to healthcare and healthcare needs. And I think the pandemic was a good reminder to all of us that, We need to take care of the whole globe, you know, take care of taking care of your surroundings and your own hospital and your own community or town or state is definitely not enough because, um, you know, these microbes are really smart and they know how to travel around the world. And what happens in India and what happens in China, what happens in Africa, eventually is going to show up in our own backyard. So we need to have this global health approach, even in our daily um practice of medicine
1: yeah that theme has come up previously in some of our talks and I couldn't agree more I mean we the days of taking care of your own backyard or, or whatever you want to call it are, are past us it's a global world now something could be in East Africa this morning and then be in a major uh, you know uh, First world city in no time. And so it's vital that we pay attention to something everywhere. Uh, I agree completely. Um, so um, HIV care has obviously evolved a lot over time, still immensely complicated. A lot of it's complicated now, not so much from the medication point of view as it is everything else that goes along with HIV. Um, and I, 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 I liked how you said your palliative care training kind of Taught you to think more about just the person rather than the disease. Um, how, how? What do you? What is your view of HIV now in the in the United States and globally?
2: Yeah, so that's you know that's a really big question to unpack, but I'm going to try. So, I think HIV as a disease itself. If you think about the disease, um, we now, like Anthony Fauci said, we have all the tools at our disposal to be able to end the HIV epidemic. We have effective treatment. We have effective prevention, whether that's pre-exposure or post-exposure. We're working really hard on getting an HIV vaccine available, but I'm pretty sure that's gonna happen and maybe even a cure in our lifetime. So we have a lot of tools at our disposal. It's really how we use these tools and how we're able to create an equitable distribution of these tools. And that's really what's leading to the picture that we see right now. So we're still seeing every year about 38,000 new HIV infections. There is about 100, uh, sorry, 1.2 million Americans living with HIV right now. And uh, many of those who are living with HIV uh, are doing okay. They're taking treatments, they're uh, doing fine, they're functioning and they're living a normal life. And that's what we see with HIV. If you're, doing okay, and taking your medicine, you basically, uh, HIV becomes the least of your problems. And all of you probably heard about the undetectable equals untransmittable movement. So people living with HIV who are taking medications whose viral load is undetectable do not transmit HIV sexually to others, even when they're practicing condomless sex. And this has been a big revolution in the HIV field. We kind of knew that, but now we have Very strong science to back that statement. And we're very confident when we talk to patients that you will not transmit HIV if you're undetectable. So that's really a big advancement that happened in the field. Yet, as I said, we have 38,000 new infections every year. That's again a big drop. So in the past 10 years, we made a lot of advances. We were dealing about maybe 50,000 infections a year. So we did make some progress, but we have not really made a big progress when it comes to disparities in HIV. So if you look at the distribution of those new infections, it's drastically different than the U.S. population demographics. So the majority of infections happen in minority communities or minoritized communities, uh, African-Americans and Hispanics specifically. And the majority of infections happen in gay and bisexual men, including those who are young, which is really sad to see because we have really good prevention methods to prevent HIV. It takes only taking one pill a day or even on demand pills to prevent HIV, yet that population that needs it the most is the one who's not able to access that prevention or has a lot of structural barriers to accessing that prevention. So there is the, glo- the local disparities, but there is also global disparities. So if you look at the distribution of HIV around the world, about maybe 12% of the population of the world lives In sub-saharan africa but 70 percent of hiv infections happen in that region and this has to do a lot with the stigmas around hiv the distribution of resources the lack of public health infrastructure in those countries so again speaking to the need to uh, approach healthcare in a global with a global mindset and with an equity-minded approach
0: so Uh, When I was getting my master's degree, we did a project on the public health prevention campaigns around HIV in the local communities, and it was really eye-opening to see how different those campaigns are in different areas of the country. Um, We didn't branch out globally to do any research for that project. Um, I'm really curious to know if you could change one thing about what is happening now with those um, public health campaigns and treatment And all of that, what would that be?
2: I think if I can change something is to put our money and resources where our mouth is. That's really what I would do, because, you know, we keep advocating for the need to address health disparities when it comes to HIV, global disparities. But if you look at the distribution of resources and distribution of money and efforts, there is a lot of disparity when that happens. There is... Better allocation now, I think since the US administration announced the end of HIV epidemic a couple of years ago, now there is a lot of emphasis on where the money needs to go to the places that need it the most. So 50% of the infections uh, of HIV happen in uh, just kind of a handful of states around the country. And now that's, those are st- the states that are being prioritized in terms of where the funding is gonna go. The south, for example, southeastern United States is where the majority of infections happen. And there is now a lot of emphasis uh, on doing so. Uh, I can't really say this is mirrored by the global image. I think the U.S. has really invested well in providing support for Africa. Uh, There is a PEPFAR program, uh, the President Emergency Relief Program. However, there is a lot of factors in those countries that are not really uh, um, allowing fair distribution of resources. As you know, there's so many political and um, you know ethnic and corruption issues in some of these regions that are preventing the uh, fair allocation of resources at the local level. Uh, but there are a lot of attempts, I should say, from uh, the U.S. and other international organizations to help overcome that. So uh, there is a lot of need to be done, uh, I think. We need to start at the grassroots at the local level to make sure we support people and organizations who are working on HIV and then extend that to a wider reach uh, eventually. So I think every one of us has a role to play when it comes to making sure that uh, people living with HIV are feeling welcomed and included and uh, part of these conversations that we have.
1: Yeah, need to release the stigma of, of any of this and uh, and 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 be inclusive and and that's a big part of a role that you're doing now locally as well. In addition to the HIV care that you do and and the and the everything that you do for your home country in Sudan as well. What is your new role with the diversity and inclusion that you have here?
2: Yeah, so that's I'm really excited about this new role, and um, I think it provides us a really good opportunity to shape the future of medicine through uh, reframing the way we're teaching future healthcare providers. So my role as assistant dean for education programs is to integrate the principles of diversity, equity, inclusion into our medical school curriculum. And the way we're trying to do that is not to create a parallel track that teaches people about diversity, equity, inclusion, but to integrate these uh, principles in every way teach everyday teaching. So for example, if I'm giving a lecture about HIV today, and I pointed out to those race disparities that we're seeing and ethnic disparities, I need to explain to people why this is happening. It's not because the HIV virus that infects African-Americans or Hispanics is different than the ones that infects whites. And it's not because biological differences in immune cells between these different populations is due to structural racism and structural vulnerability and access to resources. So I need to go far, further and explain to people why that's happening. In the past, we used to just put these statements out there, You know, African Americans have higher rates of hypertension, Hispanics have higher rates of obesity, uh, Native Americans have higher uh, mortality from certain diseases and cancers, without really explaining why that's happened. And, for a fresh mind that's learning about medicine, this becomes ingrained in our minds as something that's biological. Maybe there are some genetic differences between these populations that ex- explain that, but in fact, they're not. They're not really, uh, there's a lot of evidence now challenging even the racial groups that we have right now. They don't really make any sense from scientific perspective. There is no genetic com- commonality between these races. You know, I, I tell people about this all the time, I say, the evidence that race is a sociopolitical construct is myself, because when I moved to this country, I had to fill a form for Social Security. And my husband was right there with me. So I looked at him and I said, what race am I? I don't know what race am I. <laughs> Honestly, I just didn't know. He laughed at me and he said, you're African-American slash black. But I said, I'm not African-American and I'm not black. You know, I look at my skin and I, I'm not really black. Black is very different than and he's like, he like just check the box and move on. You know, We don't have time to <laughs> argue about this right now. And I've been really puzzled about this. And I'm like, yes, African-American is a cultural, social group that kind of got created over the years. And at some point, they were not called African-Americans. So we all know that. So, but similar to that are every other race. You could challenge the terminology that we use right now or the grouping that we use right now. Uh, We've done better over the years, but I still think that we need to make sure people understand there is really no biological basis that connect these different races. So there's no genetic similarities. And actually, if you look at population genetics, this has been challenged over the years. And the fact that we still use race in science, in our clinical trials, in our uh, disease measures and outcomes and risks is pretty uh, daunting to me. I, I don't really understand why that's happening, but there is a lot of movements now to challenge that as well. So, just a mouthful statement to say that there is so much that we need to do to change the narrative. And the, this generation of students have actually been absolutely amazing to work with because they understand that better than men of, many of us. They actually helped us create a rubric to evaluate ourselves to see if we're doing a good job when we're teaching medicine. And if we're pointing to the disparities that happen, if we're talking about global health, when we talk about diseases such as tuberculosis and HIV, et cetera. So um, it's been really fun collaborating and working closely with these students and, and having their voices be heard and helping faculty. there were a lot of faculty who were passionate about teaching about this. They just wanted to make sure they're doing it correctly. So I'm a resource for them. I provide what we call DEI tips. Teaching for Inclusion Practical Suggestion at the monthly meetings for the phase one, phase two, and phase three faculty. And I just, you know, provide like 10 minute tips on how to include different concepts in their teaching, whether it's cultural sensitivity, whether it's inclusion, uh, whether it's how you write recommendation letters with an eye that avoids implicit bias, you know, just everyday things that we need to do to think about uh, how inclusive we are being.
0: An amazing initiative that you're heading up and it's really great to hear your perspective on things. Um, if we had listeners out there that were curious about finding more information on diversity inclusion in whatever they're doing, um, what resources would you recommend for them?
2: Yeah so there are a lot of resources out there the resources for individuals, the resources for organizations, the resources uh, at the policy level how we can help. And I'm really happy to share a list of resources so you can post them with the webinar or sorry, with the podcast. Uh, but a simple thing that every one of us should do is just go out there and Google Harvard Implicit Bias Tool or Test. And this is such a telling uh, tool that basically exposes yourself to yourself. You don't really share that with anyone, uh, they, it's pretty confidential. But it really tells you a lot about yourself. And many of us uh, were very surprised when we took this test because we're like, oh, no, I I don't really have that bias. But if you confront yourself and be honest with yourself, you're going to sit down and say, well, maybe I do. And maybe that's impacting the way I'm treating different people from different backgrounds or different identities. And I need to sit down with myself and think about how I can become consciously aware of that bias and avoid it in my everyday life and teaching, et cetera.
0: Yeah, that is a, a great resource. And for our listeners, I will get that link and I'll post it with the show notes. So if you want to go do that uh, assessment, you sure can. I think that this whole inclusion and diversity thing is really interesting for me because I, I grew up probably very differently than you did, Dr. Fadul. Um, I would, grew up in a white farming community There, We didn't have any cultural diversity in my high school at all growing up. I just wasn't exposed to it. So um, I'm sure that that happens a lot, even though, um, you know, people don't think that they're biased. They grew up that way. So bringing attention to it is always a really good thing.
2: Absolutely. And I think what we need to understand is that nobody should be shamed or ashamed of their background the culture or the way they grew up. That's just who we are. Uh, The purpose here is not to like, you know, say, well, if you grew this way or if you're not diverse, that there is a problem. The purpose is that you need to be aware of it and you need to be aware of how this impacts your daily life and daily living. And maybe you need to make a a serious attempt at changing that, you know? So we did an exercise with the medical students uh, during orientation and it was called How How Diverse is Your Universe? And we gave them a series of 16 questions and they were very simple questions. So, you know, what race and ethnicity is your partner? And we gave them different beads, uh, colored beads for each race and ethnicity. And what race and ethnicity are your neighbors and your best friend and your, you know, school classmates, et cetera, et cetera. And we had them create, like basically each of them has a cup and it was a dark cup so we couldn't see what's in there but they could see themselves how diverse is their universe and the call to action was if your universe is not diverse enough you need to go and think about how you can intentionally diversify that you know omaha is a beautiful city is this beautiful tubestri of all kinds of races and colors and if you want to break that silo you can go to north omaha you know go to restaurants in that region go to south omaha to some of the grocery stores there and you know try to think about events that have refugees and immigrants and go mingle with them in those events and try to understand their background you can even start sometimes with your neighbors you know you might have somebody in your neighborhood who doesn't look like you and make a serious attempt to just go and say hi how are you today neighbor and get to know them uh, that's the way we can all break these silos. And this goes for all kinds of communities, you know, minoritized or not. I think it's a social responsibility for all of us to break those barriers.
1: Yeah, great discussion. And I'm super excited for you in this role. I, you're, I can tell your your passion. You can just hear it and feel it when you talk. If there's something that we can do to put this out for more information for people to hear, please don't hesitate to reach out to us because we're we're certainly pleased to share the message and and uh, get this word out. Um, another thing that I that you do that I've had great pleasure of actually being involved on myself was you've reached out to your home country during the COVID crisis and have done. Um, a lot of education of some remarkable students um, throughout your, your your home country in Sudan and, and worked on setting up ways that they could help the population there when maybe they didn't have the otherwise means to, to get much help. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with Project Echo Sudan and, and, and what that means to you as well?
2: Yeah, sure. That's another project that I'm extremely passionate about. And in the beginning, I was doing that as a volunteer work and um, I read this really remarkable quote. I can't really remember all of it, but I think it was a lawyer who said pro bono work is um, billable hours for the soul. And to me, this work was kind of billable RVUs for the soul. And that's kind of drove that passion about doing it. So I, I've been an activist uh, on Sudan and human rights issue for a while. Um, Sudan was under a dictatorship for 30 years. And that finally ended in 2019. Uh, There were a lot of losses that we experienced that ended that dictatorship. So a lot of youth who died, there was a genocide in the Darfur region. uh, We lost about 300,000 Sudanese uh, due to that brutal regime, which is actually now making an attempt to come back, unfortunately, as we speak. Um, So I've been quite connected with Sudan, even though I'm far away. And, you know, I go there frequently. I meet with uh, my alma mater and other universities, and I've given lectures on my visits back. So, when the pandemic happened, we put together a coalition of Sudanese organizations in an attempt to help Sudan because it just emerged out of this dictatorship with an extremely fragile healthcare system and not a lot of resources. Many uh, Sudanese doctors have immigrated outside of the country because they couldn't uh, practice there because of the brutalities they were facing. So we reached out to the Minister of Health and initially the needs were mostly logistical support and training. So we provided a lot of support fundraising for things like PPE, oxygen networks, oxygen tanks, et cetera. And then when the second wave hit, we realized that we left the community behind. We didn't really do a lot of work at the grassroots, at the neighborhood level to make sure we're addressing COVID prevention And one of the biggest gaps we noticed is home management for patients who were uh, diagnosed with COVID-19 or suspected to have COVID-19. So we reached out to student organizations. Uh, There was a program that was actually implemented here at the University of Texas San Antonio and Columbia University, training students on providing virtual home care for patients with COVID-19 who are in home isolation. So we reached out to them first, got their protocol and their successes and challenges. And then we reached out to student organizations in Sudan and said, would you be interested in doing this? And we were overwhelmed by the response. There was an amazing uptake. The students were immediately like, yes, we want to do this because we don't know what to do. Schools are closed. We have resources. We have things we'd like to do, but we just don't know how to do them. And immediately we brought together a group of 20 students. Uh, we basically went to them with a protocol. We took the protocol from here, adapted it to the Ministry of Health protocol, the WHO. The CDC had a very nice phone advice toolkit for patients who are in home isolation. So we took that and modified it to be more culturally sensitive. And we came to them with these very simple things. And we said, can you help us in implementing this and you know translating this to the real world and how we can get it done? And it was just amazing. I tell people they took this and tore it apart. <laughs> and you know they were like, no, this is not gonna work. Yes, this is good. We need this one, we can not take this one. And they put together this amazing program, helped kind of sat down with us and we built it. You know, We spent endless hours, uh, probably like three, four hours a week on Google Meet and different platforms, meeting and talking and discussing how this can be done. We brought together different stakeholders from local health departments and ministries, et cetera, and consulted them on how this can be done. And eventually we came up with uh, a program that's doable and implementable and started expanding the network of students. So we had the team, what we call the facilitators or the trainers, and we did very extensive TOT with these uh, students and kind of they had to understand all the concepts of COVID treatment and prevention. And they, by that time, they were ready to go and train other students on how to do this in their communities. So we have a neighborhood-based approach because in Sudan, once you get accepted to medical school or nursing school or dental school or pharmacy, any health professional school... You become this respected figure in the community when it comes to healthcare, and people consult you, start consulting you even while you're in school. You know, I was prescribed this medication. Can you take a look at it? Can you do this? Can you do that? Can you check my blood pressure? So we wanted to leverage that trust and turn it into COVID prevention messages and uh, campaigns within the community. And actually, we did we did really good. The students, because they know their neighborhood, they know who are the influential people. They started going meet, meeting with influential people in the community, the youth committees, the religious leaders, and you know, holding these sessions within their own community, educating people about COVID prevention and the importance of you know doing things. The why are we doing these things? Why are we wearing masks? Why are we talking about social distancing, etc. And you know, we're not expecting that we're gonna boil the ocean. Um, in one attempt. So these has to be consistent relationships and messages. But what happened is that that background really helped us when the COVID vaccine became available in Sudan, because we had enough infrastructure in the community to be able to hold pop-up vaccine clinics in different neighborhoods. And we initially targeted neighborhoods that were far away from the uh, vaccine centers. And this actually speaks to also some of the challenges we were facing here in our own backyard in Omaha. When the vaccine became available, many of the places providing the vaccine were away from uh, people who are were most at risk of the virus. You know, the far north Omaha community and the south Omaha community. So there were attempts, or actually very successful attempts, to do pop-up vaccine clinics in these neighborhoods to reach people where they're at. So we kind of took that model and used it in Sudan and reach out to the health department and the minister of health and said, hey, we have these students in the community. They have really good relationship with religious leaders and youth organizations and sports club and all kinds of prominent figures. And we also had a good relationship with Sudanese Crescent, which is equivalent of the uh, Red Cross here, the Sudanese Red Crescent. And kind of collaborated with them in holding these pop-up vaccine clinics. We were overwhelmed by the community response because initially there was a lot of Um, fear that the uptake is not going to be as much, and there's so many misinformation about COVID vaccination in Sudan. Uh, But actually, we found that if you provide people the access, you might be able to break some of that. Some people just came to see and hear about COVID vaccination, and the students were able to talk them into actually getting vaccinated right there and then. Uh, And they were so excited about coming to share these stories, because to them, these were personal gains. And and I told them from the beginning, if you're able to just prevent one infection, one person from dying, that's still a huge uh, success. And, you know. uh, and it's been really a good journey. And what I was really amazed at is the resilience of these students. They're working in extremely difficult circumstances with very little resources, but they're able to find their way around this and figure out how we can they get things done. Sometimes the last minute, the health department calls and says, Sorry, we can't come. And they already organized a clinic and they have people waiting in line. And now they're like, okay, well, what do we do? They start making phone calls to different vaccination teams and see who is available to come and fill that gap. So they just been absolutely amazing to work with. What is really exciting too about this is that it provided a virtual global health exchange opportunity for UNMC so, you know, we have faculty from UNMC. Dr. Starlin has been our guest speaker on many occasions. We woke him up at 6 a.m. in the morning on the Saturday <laughs> to participate. And the students absolutely love it when they see guest speakers who are up to date on knowledge, who can come and share this information with them in remote areas of the world. You know, this has been such a gratifying experience to, for all of us. And they take these things and they make them into actions. That's what's really been amazing about ECHO because, ECHO is a different platform than just a webinar or a lecture. It's a case-based, interactive discussion. So they're able to spend a lot of time asking questions, discussing a case, and, and bringing the challenges that they're facing to us. And we discuss those challenges, and then they turn those into actions that they can go and implement. And every week, we follow up with them and say, what have you done? We also have the Ministry of Health actively participating. They give us weekly updates on COVID vaccination and COVID rates in the community which has been extremely helpful as well. So uh, my recent attempt has been trying to engage UNMC students actually in this program. So there is a group with UNMC called Student Alliance for Global Health and they're really passionate about global health work. And in the past couple of years, obviously the work has been kind of put on hold because of COVID, Uh, but now we provided them this virtual exchange opportunity. We're trying to pair them with teams in Sudan. So each student has a team that they're working directly with they're able to communicate and chat on WhatsApp about what's happening with the challenges. And it it even went far to one of the students actually collaborating with a student in Sudan on a research project, looking at reasons behind vaccine hesitancy in Sudanese living in Sudan and Sudanese living in the US. Because being a member of the community here, I noticed that the messages that I see on the Sudan side in WhatsApp and Facebook, are the same exact messages I'm seeing here in these American community chat groups. But that's, that's where they're getting the misinformation from. It's not from our sources of information here, but from international sources of information. One example was when the Biden administration offered to send 60 million doses of Johnson & Johnson vaccine to countries who are not able to access vaccination, which was an absolutely amazing move. And we all were so excited that they started doing that. There was a rumor that immediately emerged in Sudan saying that the U.S. is sending us a malfunctioned vaccine that has not been like basically suspended in the U.S. from being used because there were some issues with the factory that produces this vaccine. And they were able to link a recent video from Biden saying we're going to send you 60 million doses to a very old video back in February when there was an issue with manufacturing of the vaccine in Baltimore. But that issue has been resolved a long time ago, but they put this video together, making it sound very suspicious. Here, the factory shutting down, saying we have 60 million doses of vaccine that we're going to dispense or investigate, to another video saying, Biden saying, oh, we're sending you 60 million doses. So... Immediately, people were like, "Oh God, you know, the U.S. is trying to kill us. They're trying to do this. We insert a microchip in us so they can track us," and all of these conspiracy theories. But you know, having those students on the ground, educating them on truly what happened, helped us kind of overcome that rumor. But the same rumor made its way here to Sudanese Americans, and all of a sudden, nobody wanted the Johnson and Johnson vaccine because that's what they thought. So it. So now we have students trying to investigate those. Uh, relationship and reasons behind vaccine hesitancy. So this has been really a good journey to make sure that we kind of link the globe using the tools we have. We have really wonderful tools right now, like this, you know, platform that we're on right now and talking, uh, so we can leverage those to address some of the health equity issues.
1: Yeah, that's outstanding. I tell you, lecturing and being a guest speaker was a lot of fun. And the level of engagement of those students is just absolutely amazing. Uh, um, I realize it's not uh, seven in the morning there when we're talking. Uh, when it's seven in the morning here, but that was the only downside to the whole thing is is, is g- getting up that early because I'm not a morning person. But you know, but it was it was awesome, and I thank you for inviting me and uh, involving me in that.
2: Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure, and we're gonna call on you again. I'm sorry, Dr. Starlin, <laughs> be ready to wake up again <laughs> at seven a.m. <laughs> ha-
1: happy to help. I do have to ask you if you ever sleep though. <laughs>
2: See, that's the one thing that I don't compromise on. Is my sleep. <laughs> I may not eat, but I have to sleep. <laughs> that's the only thing that's keeping me sane.
1: <laughs> yeah, definition of sanity, I think, is changing throughout this pandemic, right?
2: <laughs> that is absolutely true. That is absolutely
1: true. Yep.
0: So, Let's, uh, let's talk about something a little more light. I know um, with you being uh, international, you probably are um, into a lot of different types of cuisine. So um, are there any good Sudanese dishes that you could share with us?
2: Oh, we can. How many hours do we have? For this? <laughs> <laughs> You can
1: become a food show now if you like. Oh, no, absolutely.
2: I would love to. I, I love cooking. I don't love having to cook to feed people, but I love cooking in general. So uh, it's like when I'm in that mood of like wanting to cook today, I just enjoy that so much. So Sudanese food is very interesting because it's a mixture of Middle Eastern food, African food, and Ethiopian food, so all kind of in one cuisine, and it really differs between different parts of Sudan. So if if you're in northern Sudan, the food is extremely different than western Sudan, than eastern Sudan, than middle Sudan. Now it's changing a little bit because of migration, people migrate between these different regions, so we can see different cuisines in different places, but traditionally Sudanese food is based on a sauce, so usually there is meat is a an essential component, you have to have meat almost every day, if not three times a day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so coming to Nebraska probably wasn't a big change. Oh, yeah. For that. that was
2: <laughs> perfect fit for my husband. Because <laughs> if we don't eat meat that day, we didn't eat at all. <laughs> so and the favorite meats are usually lamb and beef. Those are the two common things that we use for most cuisines. So you make this sauce of um, lamb meat or beef with onions, tomatoes, and spices. Spices are very essential. So things like cardamom, cumin powder, lots of garlic, um, you know, cloves, different types of spices, depending on the dish. And then after that, you add vegetables. And the vegetables could be okra, could be spinach type of vegetables or green leaves, And, you know, anything you can think of, you can add to that sauce and then make it into a distinct dish. And you can eat that with either bread, which is the most common um, thing that we use for most part. Some people use rice, depending on the region. Some people use porridge that's made of any type of flour that, you know, depending on the region, they use either arrowroot or wheat or, you know, corn or different types of flour. And then there is what we call gurasa and kisra. So, gurasa is a bread, very thick bread made of wheat. And usually they mix like whole wheat with, um, you know, any type of other, like all purpose type of flour. And to make that, uh, and it's very simple. You just mix some with water and you let it rise a little bit. And then you cook it on a pan, on a flat pan. And you eat it fresh, like, it has to be like right off the pan and you eat it right then and there is the other one called kisra and kisra is fermented usually arrowroot or corn flour and you let that ferment usually for a couple of days and it becomes really kind of sour somewhat sour and it's made very thin Uh, it takes very special skills to make that and i haven't mastered that yet i've been trying for years now but (laughs) i've not been there so i buy mine ready usually but there are certain dishes that go with kisra, certain dishes that go with gurasa, certain dishes that go with bread, certain dishes that go with rice. So you kind of have to figure out which combination is the right combination. If you mess up, then you'll receive some criticism. <laughs> <laughs> and if you mess
0: up, it still gets eaten,
2: right? I mean, it gets eaten, but you'll get those <laughs> looks like you don't know what you're doing. Kind of I've seen some of those looks before. So. <laughs>
1: Oh, well, that's awesome. Um, so glad that you were able to join us today. Did you have anything else that you, um, that we didn't cover? I mean, you do so many things. I'm sure we left something out. We may have to have you back on again in the future to to hit on the other things that you do or any questions for us or anything.
2: No, I mean, it's just, uh, it's been really a great experience. I, I I have to also say that for those who don't live in Nebraska, it's, you get surprised when you move here. So I was extremely surprised when I moved to Omaha. Um, it's such a welcoming city. It's a very diverse city. You have that feel of a big city, but a small town all together at once. Um, when I moved, went to D.C. to visit a couple of weeks ago, I was so intimidated by the traffic. I was like, oh, my God, I can't do this. Never. <laughs> I think living in Omaha now spoiled me. But I really enjoy working with the communities here locally. I've been engaged with Sudanese community and different communities. And we've recently made a relationship with a church group here in Omaha. So just trying to go out of your comfort zone is, would be my message to everyone um, and explore the diversity in your local neighborhood and community, especially if you live in Omaha.
1: Great advice. Thank you very nice. much.
0: Yeah.
2: Thank absolutely. you so
1: much
0: Good for pleasure. joining us today,
2: Dr. Fadul. It was awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed talking to you guys. We'll
0: do it again.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah. It didn't feel like a podcast. It felt like just a chat with two friends.
1: That's that's the goal. That's the goal. <laughs> but I, I'm sure yes. you've taught a lot of people a lot of things in that brief 45-minute uh, chat. You had great source of information. Thank you again.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having
0: me yeah and for all of our listeners out there we will catch you for our next episode of Dirty Drinks thank you for joining us for today's episode if you enjoyed this content please share it with your friends and don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at Dirty Underscore Drinks on Twitter if you would like to share your story reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes we would love to meet you Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.